Welcome to the Self-Love Recovery Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Rosenberg. I am the author of The Human Magnet Syndrome, The Codependent Narcissist Trap, and the creator of the Codependency Cure and Hitch Trauma Resolution Treatment Programs. If you identify with codependency, which I renamed the Self-Love Deficit Disorder, or you're caught in the crosshairs of narcissistic abuse or gaslighting, you've come to the right place. Expect the very best information that I know, whether from my own personal journey of recovery or through my 35 years of professional experience. What separates my work from others is my understanding of the origin of the problem, the solutions, and the necessity to take responsibility for one's broken picker that always points them to the dream of the soulmate, but the nightmare of the cellmate. So join my self-love recovery community and set your sights on the cure, self-love abundance. I am so excited today because I get a chance to talk to a friend, colleague, and someone I so, so greatly admire, Wendy Bahari. Welcome, Wendy. I am so glad to do this. You and I have have been connected probably for 10 years, ever since I wrote my first book. And I, I, I honor your work. It inspires me. It has influenced me. And I'm grateful that we get to talk. Let people know who you are and the wonderful idea for the conversation that we're going to have today. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on your podcast program. It's wonderful. And for all the contributions that you are making in the field. Um, I'm Wendy Beharry. Hi, everybody. I am so happy to be sitting here with Ross. And we're going to talk today about quieting your inner critic. I am the author of Disarming the Narcissist, now in its third edition. And my expertise is really in the subject of working with and treating people who have narcissistic personalities, along with those people who are dealing with them and being impacted by them. That has been my 30-year career, if you will. Um, But I'm also keenly aware, having worked with this population, about the fact that they are often driven by or compensating for a very constant hum of this demanding internal critic. Do more, do better, be the best. Um, What's wrong with you? You didn't try hard enough. And because of that need for extraordinariness, the inner critic is kind of always pumping away, you know, driving the acceleration of, of performance to the unfortunate cost on intimacy and relationships. You know, we all have an inner critic. And as I was doing some research for other presentations on this topic recently and some writing I've been doing, I realized, you know, we all have one. Sometimes it's quiet. Sometimes it's more of a guide than it is a critic. And much of the time, it's a critic. It's demanding. It's devaluing. It's dismissive. It can be very, very hurtful, sometimes menacing, the worst case scenarios at the top of the spectrum, and trying to just evacuate it by yelling at it, you know, talking to ourselves sometimes can help for limited amounts of time. But because we live at the mercy of our memory, it doesn't necessarily have long lasting effects. So I started thinking about how we might be able to convert the message of the critic if we could get a better sense of what its real intention is. Because we know it as an anchor, it has roots in like our very beginnings called discipline and limit setting and frustration tolerance as we're coming into the world and developing our little selves and preparing for life thereafter. So that's what I thought we could we could talk about a bit today. It's interesting because when we, we chose this topic, I thought, you know, it's something I don't talk about. Therefore, 
I want to do it because it's something that I discovered in myself, which actually is like ground zero for most of what I eventually write about, is that these negative thoughts, these, you know, you're, you're dumb, you know, you're to this, you're not that. If we can remove ourselves from the emotional or affective, that physical feeling of being disturbed mm -hmm. and angry, and, and with the help of a psychotherapist, look at what the actual dialogue is. And I asked my clients, you know, they said, well, no one's ever going to trust me. I'm not smart enough. I'm going to fail at school. And I would ask, how long have you been believing this? And how long have you been saying this? Mm -hmm. And more often than not, my clients who are primarily SLDs or codependents will say, well, ever since I was a child. And then I'll ask, who or which people do you remember saying this to you? And then they'll say, well, well, my dad said it. And then we'll explore that and I'll kind of do what I do in my therapy approach and, you know, do a little bit of regression. And then we will find out that this dialogue, this sliver of the inner critic is a manifestation from what someone had told them, reinforced them, and as a child, gaslit into them. Mm -hmm. Very quickly, gaslighting is when you purposely try to change a person or alter a person by proving there's something wrong with them that they never had, you know, a disorder that they never had, a problem they never had, systematic manipulating environment and proving to them that this narrative of their problem is so big that they eventually are, need to isolate themselves. So if we take that as a very general definition of gaslighting, and we look at, you know, a child at eight years old who is being told you're not smart enough, whether it's told directly or indirectly, then that feeling, that belief is carried inside through all sorts of psychological processes. And when my client identifies, oh yeah, that's, that's what my mom said. So what I do is I, I use the term voice. So that is then the voice of your father. Mm -hmm. And and we talk about that voice, whether it was done purposely or it just happened because of attachment trauma. And I should say, foundationally, all my clients have attachment trauma because that's a part of SLDD. And that really what we have is the voice of someone else. I definitely think the in, inner critic can come from a number of sources. It can be as simple as, you know, when we look at early development, right out of the womb, there's the interruption of pleasure. There's frustration right. tolerance that's forced upon a child just sometimes out of practical reasons, sometimes out of impairment of a parent. Um, you know, as the child grows and needs to learn about limits, right? That enough is enough and something is too much. You know, that chocolate eating it too much will make you sick or time to yeah. do your homework or bedtime. I mean, any time, discipline is not a dirty word, but how it gets delivered can be either very toxic or it can be sometimes a little too loose and non-existent or something in the middle. At best, a child comes into the environment with some degree of sensitivity, sometimes a lot, sometimes something in the moderate range, right. and they're met with an environment that can attend to that thoughtfully without assassinating their character. If right. you come from an environment like you're describing where the criticism is more menacing, it's more yeah. punitive, and it is, it doesn't have good intention. We have to evacuate it. We have to find ways to confront it and evacuate yeah. because it's an internalized voice. It is the internalized voice or introject as some experts would call it. 
that has now taken up residence in the brain as a way of looking out at the world and yourself more specifically, how you fit in or how you don't. So, you know, for some people, as I said, it can be more demanding. For others, it's just very devaluing. And for some, it's very punishing. It can be dangerous. And, you know, in my work, I've thought a lot about conversion techniques with the critic. A conversion technique would be, you know, if you... The, let's start with the best form of communication it's, mm-hmm. is that my intention matches the impact. So I want to let you know that I care about you as a person. Well, that right. wouldn't come out with, you know, yeah, you know, you're okay. <laughs> you know, that, right. that certainly would not deliver the message if I'm what I'm feeling here is that right. I want to convey a message of caring. So a parent who wants to convey a message of protecting a child from failure promoting a child's well-being, be the best you can be because you're so bright. Well, that doesn't come out by saying, you know, what were you thinking? You didn't try hard enough. You're such a lazy ass. You know, that doesn't really convey the message of protection or promotion. So if we can get at intent, and we're not going to get at intention by interviewing the parent in most cases, but we know our clients very often, those listening know that we want to think that, our parents did the best they could, even though it wasn't very good. And we ended right. up internalizing this voice. It might not even have been directed at us. Like you said, it may have been directed at another parent or a sibling. It could be vicarious. But what we also know from the research is that the number one thing one feels when they're exposed to that criticalness, especially if it's accompanied with anger, is shame. Right. And so, you know, it kind of helps to fertilize the inner critic And I think that we can convert the message by finding our healthiest adult best self, if you will, that can take that intention. The intention is to promote me. So what would it sound like if it's more promotional and it's not ridiculing and and pushing me so hard that it feels oppressive and burdensome and like I have no life? Well, it would sound like you're really smart. You can do this. I believe in you. Make sure you rest. Make sure you care for yourself. Make sure you have balance in your life. It would be a what we call in schema therapy a good parent living in our head. Before uh, we proceed, what is schema therapy? Because you are at the forefront. You and Jeffrey Young are the the top dogs, the the inventors. What's the right word? Yeah, the, well, Jeff Jeff Young is actually the founder of schema therapy. I was very yeah. privileged to meet him in 1989 when the model was still being developed. So I was part of that developmental think tank, if you will, in Manhattan. And we worked hard on expanding this once upon a time coming out of cognitive behavioral therapy approach into an approach that would look at the deeper issues connected to more complex problems. So more personality problems, um, strong emotional problems. Schema therapy is really applicable to, you know, a whole host of emotional and behavioral challenges that people face. So it's not limited to narcissism. But we did develop a specific approach that can work with people who have narcissistic personalities, people who have Mm -hmm. longstanding depression and other types of personality problems. So it's it's a beautiful model that pays a lot of attention to kind of the inner script that we've developed as a result of attachment ruptures, meaning early life experiences where our most important emotional needs are not being adequately met. And so the schema is like a trait that has more than just a thought. It has strong emotions, strong somatic response, 
and can lead to maladaptive coping responses um, that become self-defeating, kind of like they were helpful when you were little and powerless, not so helpful in your adult life. And the whole work of schema therapy is really to use the resource of the imagination and emotion to engage one in unlearning some of these blueprints that have been laid down. Everything that I know about schema therapy, including when I first researched it, who knows, 20 years ago or 15 Mm -hmm. years ago when it first came out, is really something that is a powerful, researched, validated, reliable approach. But what you're saying matches up with a point of view that I have is that my SLD clients have this self-love deficit disorder, and, and I have a pyramid to describe um, this theory, primarily because they were exposed to attachment trauma by a parent who was pathologically narcissistic with a personality disorder and a parent who was what I call self-love deficient or codependent. And if a child found a way to survive, they would take that survival experience and move forward with this relationship template and eventually would be attracted to, as my book says, human magnet syndrome, a pathological narcissist. So the, the focus I have is with these clients who have this attachment trauma that a lot of them aren't aware of, that is disassociated uh, from our awareness, you know, stored in, in uh, the limbic system. And so when we start working on the inner critic, it's important to find out the origins of that. And sometimes, especially with my healthier clients, it doesn't go back to attachment experiences. It's not the voice of a parent. My focus is with my clients is to trace back the origins. And then let's assume because my clients are SLDs, the origins come from this attachment experience we talk about is understand how we adopted that thought and that version, that judgment, Mm -hmm. and now perpetrate it against Mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. And because the clients who see me are like, I think the average age is in their 40s, the goal is not to go back to their parents and and have, you know, family therapy and work it out. They have to figure out a way to solve, heal, and overcome what was either given to them or not given to them. And to that, that would be my version of the conversion is to reparent yourself is to find a way and and i'd like for you to talk more about that but find a way to give yourself grace nurturing forgiveness when you think you're making a mistake but especially when you are making a mistake and that inner Mm -hmm. critic is just out of control right so what do you think about the reparenting concept or the term you use what i remember is parenting Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, limited reparenting was uh, the term founded by Dr. Jeffrey Young in schema therapy many years ago, but it is considered a limited and adaptive reparenting role. So the therapist really takes the role as being this agent for change and being a good parent. So what would a good parent do in this situation? What does the child need in this moment? And all the work of schema therapy is about taking maladaptive reactions and turning them into adaptive ones. That doesn't mean, you know, making everything rosy. You can't take a past that was filled with suffering and make it happy. But what you can do is reorganize the message that got attached to it and got carried throughout. 
because that's really where we all end up being hijacked, right? So we call it schema activation and or the critic is being activated because schemas are being activated. So it looks like this. I see someone glaring at me and if I happen to have abandonment issues, mm -hmm. I might, the inner critic goes, well, there you go. You're going to be rejected now. Look what you right. just set yourself up for. I may not remember being told that as a child. Right. Maybe I don't remember anyone saying that to me. It could be really subtle. It could be that I was born with a biological sensitivity, super sensitivity more than the average, and was with an environment that was maybe just a little too disconnected, right. more detached, more inhibited. Or I just forgot because we forget, you know, so there is that too. So we have to assume that there is an origin. There's a way that voice got internalized. And what it picks up in its content is anything that's related to what you were referring to as attachment ruptures, what has happened in our life where those early unmet needs have not been met. So if it's deprivation, if it's a feeling of defectiveness, these are schemas that we would name. If it's mistrust, then, you know, the inner critic goes, well, now you're just being stupid. You know, you're going to get taken advantage of. Like, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you figure this out? What's taking you so long? A schema can be anything in general, but right. specifically to schema therapy, early maladaptive schemas or EMS, there are 18 that have been analyzed in, mm -hmm. in the research. Right. These 18 early, we all have them. Everybody has schemas. One, two, three, 10, 12. We all have them because nobody comes from a perfect beginning. We all have biology. We all have environment. Mm -hmm. We have that match that makes personality, right? Schemas are basically what I what we think of as like, these truths that live mm -hmm. within us, these traits that have been laid down as a result of our experiences where yeah. our needs were not adequately met. They could be really toxic in some cases or more mm -hmm. subtle in others. But when they are activated, they are exaggerated to the point where you're literally in a time warped moment. Mm -hmm. You don't know it, but suddenly you're feeling as if like your world is crashing in or someone's about to hurt you or you're going to be rejected or you're going to be embarrassed or, you know, something's going to happen. Something related specifically to an event that is very reminiscent. So schemas are these traits. They're not always active. They're activated right. under certain conditions that look like, smell like, taste like. And then mm -hmm. if we're lucky, our executive functioning lights up and our healthy adult self, our good parent, comes on board and can help us go, that's old. That's once upon a time. That was then. This is now. You're okay. You're safe. If you're not lucky or you haven't quite gotten there yet, your, your good parent doesn't come on board so quickly, you're left to use the survival instincts and constructs that you designed when you were very young, which means we end up sometimes in self-defeating places that can feel good in the moment like I tuck my head under the covers but then in the aftermath it's gosh I missed the whole party you know I missed the whole event because I was so busy beating myself up in the mirror that I didn't look good so you know it's the reparenting it's the rescripting that we do in imagery in the therapy relationship to be able to begin to rethink the way we've looked at these things over time the way we have felt them in our bodies the way we have responded to them or reacted even better as opposed mm -hmm. to really reflecting on them and, and shifting the, the choices that we make from a sturdier, healthier position. Um, first of all, that was incredibly clear. My basic point of view is that SLDs cannot overcome uh, 
the problem, which is self-love deficiency, shame, loneliness, mm-hmm. this addiction mm-hmm. to um, a relationship, and all the things that make people um, self-love deficient and codependent. If we just focus on the symptoms, and for that matter, the symptom could be, you know, I, I have to quit criticizing myself. I have to shut that critic down. And so I create this theoretical picture that my clients feel very comfortable with, and that is your negativity, pessimism, uh, negative self-talk comes from attachment trauma, comes Mm -hmm. from uh, the crucible uh, within which Mm -hmm. most of what you learned about life as a child would be impacted in your adult relationships and your adult mental health. And so we go backwards and backwards until we find the origin of the pattern and the reparenting process. They will join me in moving back into the unknown territory of their childhood feelings and memories. The treatment is called the healing the inner trauma child treatment method, which I call the hitch method. But the idea is to find where my client shut down, disassociated, or their memories or their feelings became unconscious, Mm. you know, similar to PTSD, except this is a big swath of their life, and help them understand there is this treasure trove of information about who they are, that because the memories are so painful, and for good reason, have been transferred to the part of their their brain, the limbic system to manage that for safety reason is to help them get healthier so that they can revisit those memories, those experiences that are disassociated. And in that affective experience where they can feel it throughout their body and remember it, they are connecting to what I call the inner trauma child, which is memories of the child right before the trauma became so bad they had to shut it down. Mm -hmm. And in that environment, which there is this, I don't think of it in the moment, but reparenting where someone trusts you, we revisit the origins of the, the inner critic and get to understand what they could never understand in any form of traditional psychotherapy because you can't process or understand that which your brain decided it's too traumatic, so it's gonna take it offline. And it's not that what I do is all about this type of work, it's, it's a sliver. But when I can get someone to explore some of their, for lack of better words, inner critic dialogue is connected to something that was so bad and so harmful that they've never remembered, and able to not only remember it, but help them integrate it, help them facilitate them to be psychologically healthy enough so that they can bring what I was able to connect, help them experience back Mm -hmm. into their conscious thinking. And that is the type of inner critic that I am focusing on. And I think what you're doing is, is very much like what we're doing in schema therapy, we're integrating, we're not eclectic. So it's a very deliberate integration of schools of thinking that 
will help to accomplish the mission that has been generated by a very thoughtful conceptualization of each case. So what that means is I want to know the narrative really well inside out and backwards. I want to understand once upon right. a time there was a little boy, little girl who, etc. what you experienced, your strengths, your challenges, how you coped, your sense of the world. And then, you know, we what we're trying to do is correct these biased emotional experiences. How do we do that? through the limited reparenting, through the use of dialogues, imagination, looking back, rescripting, you know, being able to feel that sense of getting a need met that was never met, which automatically starts to change. It's not the magic fix. It's not the be all end all to quiet the inner critic, but it sure is helpful when you can lessen the intensity, lessen the frequency, get to a place of recovery more quickly where you're really making sense out of what's happening. You're differentiating past from present. You're recognizing that voice in your head that isn't helpful and converting it, as I said, into something that can be helpful to you. Because I do think the critic is the perpetrator of a lot of the suffering because it grabs all the content from what we've learned and then it just bellows it out there in our brain, either loudly or sometimes just, you know, implicitly without awareness. No matter what your mental health is or what diagnosis fits you, if you do the digging, you find the pieces, you work through the problems, the trauma, then you can be more sturdy and uh, strong enough, integrated enough to be able to then look at the inner critic that comes from you. You can't, yes. you can't keep blaming your parents. Well, um, please tell my viewers and listeners uh, where they can learn more about you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And we could talk for hours, obviously. But thank you for sharing your wonderful contributions. Thank you for having me. If you want to hear more about my work, um, have access to my book or my podcasts or anything else. Wendy Beharry, you can type my name in your browser or disarmingthenarcissist.com. Thank you. And thank you um, too, Ross. Thank you so much. Let's let's keep in touch. Let's do. Take good care. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Building a self-love recovery community means the world to me. Spread the word. Let people know what we're talking about. And until we meet next, I'd like to leave you my favorite of all sayings by George Eliot. It's never too late to be what you might have been. Don't forget that. Our future is in our hands, despite what anyone has told you before. You can be the self-love abundant person you've always dreamt of. It's your birthright.